Welcome to the Yada 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 podcast, where we interview members of the local Brisbane arts community. We go behind to find out what makes the artist tick. Welcome back to another episode of Yada 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 podcast by Starving Kids. Today, we're fortunate enough to have Matt Oxlade in the studio for a chat about his photography and his podcast. How's your day been so far? Good, man. I don't often come into the valley and I'm now I'm spoiled for coffee choices. And it's like everywhere's good. So where'd you go? Uh, I don't know, a hole in the wall, but that's the best part about it is like you discover these little places and you don't even know what it's called. And you go, oh, it's two doors up from 7-Eleven. Like 7-Eleven is now the flag point. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you just go two doors left from 7-Eleven. That's true. Uh, but it had like a hip hop vibe. It was just, it felt really organic. Yep. And I remember sitting in this chair and it's so interesting, like the places that are really good are the places that are thought out, but to the point where they've just come into ownership of all these different items. And it's like a church pew I sat at. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, yep. you can't. And I remember sitting down there, I'm like, you can't manufacture that. You can't yeah. just buy a church pew and have it feel like it did. It's got to yeah. be lived in. And I was like, man, this is a vibe. I think you're at Reverend's then, because that would be the one two doors down and there's a church pew. So you're at Reverend's, which, you're you know, right. church, the, the theme. See, there you know, we go. They've themed it. <laughs> It's good coffee there. There's a few around the valley. Like, you're right. I work here and I am spoiled for choice. Yeah, it was and delicious. I, I rarely go to the same place all the time. I kind of mix it up because there's lots of good ones. Disloyal. If I'm in a hurry, I don't cross a road. So there's one just up at the Judy, which is just really easy. That's yeah. a quick one. If I have got time, I usually go down McLaughlin to Barebones and have coffee there. But, you know, pop into Reverence if I'm having a meeting because they've got places to sit. Yeah, yeah. And there was good service. Yeah. Good people. Yeah. So coffee for all occasions. Nice. So you don't often come into the valley. So tell us, what are you doing now instead of coming into the valley? Well, this hasn't been much happening in the valley for a long time, right? I moved to Bowen Hills and I thought, wow, I'm right on the cusp of the valley. I can just walk down to Crowbar. And Crowbar ceased to exist. <laughs> COVID happened. All those kind of things. So I guess, um, you know, I guess the only real reason that I was able to gain any traction with photography to start with is meeting people that gave me a chance, like Luke Henry and, and some other people but also understanding digital marketing. And so digital marketing being the day job at least allows me to either be at home or to be in the office and I can just sort of stay in my little bubble but still reach a bunch of people. And I think COVID taught a lot of people that you need to understand how to leverage digital marketing and not be afraid of a brand. Like even this week I was speaking to someone and she was a, an adult content creator. She was like, I'm really struggling with my brand. I don't really know how to accept that I need a brand. And I'm like, a brand is just about consistency of what you're offering customers. That's it. And creators often struggle with it because they think it's selling out and all those kind of things. And so spending a lot of time working with creatives now as well outside of the day job of digital marketing to help them understand that's not a scary thing. It's not a bad thing to really sort of like adopt that and hold it. It's something you can do in a unique way. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. You are a brand, really, when you stop and think about it. You mm -hmm. know, and even if you're just the average Joe, you're a brand to your family. That's about integrity and being genuine and authentic. That's who you are as a father or a son or a wife or whatever you are. Everyone really, if you think about it from that, that point of view, is a brand. So you sh people shouldn't be afraid of it. It's just no. being about... Like those things, authentic, genuine, having some integrity and consistency, I think, is really important. Yeah, what am I going to expect from Matt? What am I going to expect from Brett? You know, these are the things that form your brand yeah. and they should be relatively straightforward. And if you really are true to that 
and you're not manufacturing it, it should just come easy. True. Well, let's talk about your photography a bit. What got you started in photography? I remember I, I moved to Canada for a bit because I had an identity crisis and I'm like, I can't just keep working at Bunnings and Flight Center anymore. <laughs> so I, I went to Canada and, and had no goal with the intent to recreate. And I'd always perceived photography to be a really expensive hobby and a profession that was kind of outside of any kind of real reach for me. And I was like, I can't afford that. And then I roommate with somebody who had no money, he had no job prospects, but he had many cameras and he loved doing it. And I'm like, I earn more than him, what's my excuse? And then I was like, okay, I'm just spending it on the wrong things. And so I was like, if I want this bad enough, I can buy a camera and then it's just time. And so when I got back from Canada after I feel like I sort of refreshed and shook off all those sort of expectations of someone I didn't want to be, I was like, who do I want to be? And I wanted to be someone that gave back to music because in the age of streaming, I didn't have a vinyl player. I was buying a CD from JB Hi-Fi knowing no money got to the artist. And I'm like, how do I contribute? And I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll take photos and maybe I'll be good at it or maybe I won't but it's a nice thing to do. And so I just got out there and I started, I think my first my first shoot was at the Beetle Bar. Wow. Um, which is near the, it was the barracks, like uh, um, Paddington. Yeah, it's in amongst those um, backpackers. Yeah, it's, it's in a really rare, bad area. Yeah, yeah it's like, hard to get to. Yeah, and I don't even think it exists anymore. No, <laughs> it just existed the to service the backpackers. The Flaming Galar, it's called now. Yeah, true. So I went to uh, the Beetle Bar and I shot a band called Poncho Pilot which I don't know if they exist anymore. Um, and the photos were bad, they were really bad. And I remember thinking, this is really hard. <laughs> but I love the pressure of knowing that I can't get the band back on stage. So what I do now matters. And it's that sense of risk and danger and that little bit of pressure to be good in that moment was kind of exciting. And so I just kept sort of doing it and just talking to people and going, okay, I like this band, I kind of understand this band, it's music and what their sort of essence is, and I kept wanting to do it. And then uh, when Crowbar sort of built downstairs, so they used to only have downstairs, and then they built upstairs with the little back room, they're like, we want to inject more art into here, and you've taken a lot of photos at the, at the venue over the last year, can you come in? And I was like, okay, and you know, before we started recording, we are talking about leverage, right? And it was, okay, well, yeah, I'm happy to sort of, you know, give you these photos to display and stuff, but I also want to do more work here. Can we sort of form some kind of understanding that I'm kind of your house guy, I'm the first guy you go to, and that at least takes away a lot of the admin of me needing to approach these bands <laughs> and getting these things done. And so just being there over time was really important. And I think what was really successful in that relationship was understanding Crowbar's brand yep. in the black and white mm -hmm. and understanding the bands that go through there. And I remember one thing Trad, the, one of the owners of Crowbar said to me, I said, what do you need from me? He said, just be the wallpaper, just be here. And that really stuck with me because I realized that really a venue and a photographer by proxy to that is a rock where all the river just passes through it. And all of these bands are just passing through and you're the constant and so when they get there, they expect you. And that's where the Crowbar couch photo stuff was formed, where yep. it's like, okay, how do we weave in Crowbar's brand? And I said to Crowbar, I'll buy the lights, you just give me the access, and we do it every single time. Now people are doing their own Crowbar couch photos on their phone down right. in Sydney, <laughs> and because it's just what you expect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think 
it's just the people that you meet kept me going beyond wanting to contribute to music because people, you put a face to the name, you put a story to the name, then you form a friendship. These things start to mean a lot more than just a two dimensional photo, but then people want to hang it in their homes yeah. and that's like, that's the cherry on the top. That's, that's the ultimate, isn't it? When someone says, I want to buy this and then they send you a photo of where it's hanging in oh, their house. Best feeling. Yeah, yeah, I've had that happen twice now. But, you know, yeah. building on that. You never forget it. All, no. all you need is like one time, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And I think I said something recently on social media. I was like, it doesn't matter what you get paid from any of this because your money means nothing at the end of it. But these photos continue to exist yeah. once they're printed. And yeah. that's the only thing you should aim for to create something real. So true. Just going back to the crowbar, what's interesting, you know, it's obviously RIP, the Brisbane crowbar. Hopefully one day Huge it comes loss. back. It was about community. I remember we've just done a podcast with Party B and talking to her not on the podcast but knowing her and talking to her the, the, the crowbar had this kind of family vibe to it where you were welcome and I think because there were consistent things like yourself there and Trad and so on that it was that family environment and I think that's really important in a venue and not every venue gets that yeah you're absolutely right and it was something that it was lost on me for a bit I have to admit I probably never admitted this it was kind of like lost on me and I thought it was just another venue and luckily it didn't take them closing for me to realize that I realized it much before that but it it was around the time when I lost my camera. Well, my camera was stolen. I've been too nice about it. Someone stole my camera at Crowbar and, um, and it was stolen for 10 days. And that was the night I met Luke Henry. Uh, and so it was weird because he sent me a pic of me with the camera and that was the last sighting of me with the camera. So I knew that uh, you know I had the camera at a certain time. Then we found the, the, found the footage of the guy stealing it and I was like, it's gone. And Trad and Tyler were like, no, we'll get it back. We'll get it back. And I'm like, it's gone. You know, it's 10,000 bucks worth of gear. It's not coming back. And they were like, we'll put on a, if it doesn't come back, we'll put on a fundraiser. And, but I reckon we'll get it back. And that, that had so many shares. That had something like half a million people had seen that post, that one post that Crowbar did. And that doesn't count a lot of the shares and stuff like that. I had like morning shows hitting me up when we got it back. Um, Eric Melvin from NoFX shared it and said, because the guy's wearing a NoFX shirt, he goes, you're not a fan of ours. Like the community aspect of that became very, very obvious. And that's when I realized that this is, this is bigger than just a venue or my contribution to a venue. This is like an ethos. This is a, a family tie. Because I always get really frustrated when people go, oh, I love you, man. You're, you're like a family to me, you watch Big Brother and they go, this is a Big Brother family. It's like, man, you've known each other for two weeks. <laughs> you know, but that's the real essence of community. Yeah. And I will never ever forget strangers knowing and caring enough to share something that really, what, what do they care? Yeah, for sure. And I was, so, I was so cynical, I think, back then, and that changed my perspective on community a lot. Do, do you find Brisbane itself in the music industry is a bit like that? You know, I know Crowbar specifically, but I see within the Brisbane scene that there's this lot of collegiality within the industry, whereas I think, I'm not sure because I've not experienced Sydney or Melbourne, mm. but in a bigger scene, it might not be that way. Have you, do you kind of find that vibe in Brisbane as well? Uh, I feel like Brisbane's in a really healthy place. I feel like when I started, it absolutely wasn't. Yep. Um, you know, I screenshotted everyone that said anything negative about me because I couldn't believe how toxic it was. And I thought, you know, you never know. And I think it's gotten a lot better. And that was one of my driving forces of wanting to 
you know, put out a guide to how to get started music photography, to do the podcast, to do, you know, YouTube tutorials, to come here and do the workshop, to, you know, do all those kind of things. I wanted to at least do a small contribution to stamp out the toxicity. And I don't think it's exclusively me that did that, but I think a lot of people putting in work has stamped out the toxicity. And I think it still obviously exists in little sort of pockets, but it's a lot better. And I think Melbourne has always been ahead of Brisbane, but I think Sydney still has some work to do. Like I think Sydney on the surface, they all say they're very supportive of each other, but they're also very, they all undercut each other, not just money wise, opportunity wise, little things like if you get an opportunity and then someone goes, oh, I can't do it. They'll go, oh, do you know anyone? And that person will say no. Right. You absolutely know people yeah. all over the shop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think Sydney has a little little bit of a way to go. Uh, I don't I don't know what the solution to that is because I don't exist in that sort yeah. of realm. But I think they can do it. I think if Brisbane did it, I think Sydney can do it as well. Yeah. Um, and Adelaide has a smaller pool, but I think they've got the same problem as Sydney. People pretending that they've never heard of you yeah. when they follow you. And you're just like, you just know that that's not real. And when, as soon as you can sense that something's not real, it's like, I don't care that you're saying you don't know me, but you do. So why would you say that you don't? Like, it's that mismatch of authenticity. And then you, you can't get that back. It takes so much effort to get that authenticity and trust back, you know? Yeah. Let's talk about... Go back to gig photography again. You know, I'm thinking back like, you know, names like Aleti Tumpus, Aaron Samet, Stephen Booth, Dane Beasley. I don't think any of them are taking gig photos anymore. Is yeah. it tough to make a living? And obviously you're not making a living out of your photography. Mm -hmm. You know, you just mentioned your camera's worth 10K. I'm wondering if you've ever regenerated that 10K out of photography at all. But is it tough to keep going back and going, I'm doing this for the love of it? Because you know, I just mentioned four really good gig photographers that aren't doing that anymore. Yeah, I think it's people are dazzled by weddings. I think a lot of those, they do weddings now. And there's I, money in weddings. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't blame them because there absolutely is. Yeah. And there's money in music as well, but you have to put in a lot more hours. And you know, like I was saying, Bunnings and Flight Center, the reason I left Flight Center is because I was doing 55 hours for 500 bucks a week and it just was too much. And then government people were getting paid, 30, you know, they were doing 37 hours and getting paid twice as much. And yeah. so you leave something you're passionate about being travel because it's just too much work. And I think as you get older, it's harder to go to a gig. <laughs> Because, you know, you're just like, uh, you're either, all the bands that you follow cease to exist and then you do I rebuild a new relationship or do I not? And it, it becomes harder, right? So I, I think if there was more money in music, I think maybe they would still be around. But, you know, it becomes more expensive to live the older you get yeah. and you have to make some tough decisions. But I, I can't speak for them, but I know those names and they took great photos yeah. and it's a shame that they're not still doing it. But yeah, I think one of the things when I sort of started and when we're talking about brand and stuff, people hated on me for having a brand of just being like a no-nonsense brand, but they didn't like it because I wasn't charging anyone. Occasionally Crowbar would give me some money but other times they would just give me some beers. And that was enough for me because it was about giving back. I never wanted it to be a career. I wanted to give back to something. Yeah. Um, and so it was interesting that they were really anti that because they would say that I'm undercutting people and I'm the reason why no one can make any money. And then I went and started, I'm like, okay, well, I'll make some money. And I sold some signed prints. So I'd say to a band, okay, band A, I'll fork out for all the flights on this and all of your com, I'll be your tour photographer. You have to sign 10 to 20 prints. I keep total profit from that. 
And then for your next tour, I'll reinvest that money on that and then any excess I keep as profit. And so I was like, okay, we'll do it that way because the label's not paying, the manager doesn't wanna pay, the band thinks they've paid that the manager hasn't paid. And so it's kind of like all this confusion, whereas I can just take the ownership of responsibility of getting paid and putting it on myself. And so I found that useful, but it still wasn't enough for the community. They're still like, you're undercutting because they're still thinking true traditional. Yeah. But there's no money there. Yeah. They can't pay you for money that doesn't exist. <laughs> And they see all the money that goes over the merch bar, they see the money that goes over the, the alcohol bar, they see the ticket thing. All that money goes elsewhere. Like these bands are on less than minimum wage if they don't have a day job. Well, some of them are getting paid in beers too. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff too. So it's like, where, where do you think you're getting paid from? Where's the line item on the budget? It doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah. So, you know, you gotta really think differently and that takes effort too. And so I wouldn't be surprised if the older school generation just before me, whether they were just like, I just, weddings, pays. Yeah. You know, or another I wouldn't job. blame him for that or another job too. Yeah. But I've also, it's interesting because I did a wedding a couple of weeks ago and I never like to do weddings because it's just not me. Yeah. And so I think you've got to understand what your style is as well and not be wowed by a few thousand dollars and, you know, just going, I just don't want to do it because yeah. it was really like it triggered my anxiety big time. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm like, what if I miss the first kiss? What if I miss this? What if I miss that? And you don't, but you still like, it's not worth a couple of grand for me. So yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned those names because that's such a flashback yeah, because yeah. I really looked up to them uh, and their work still stands up today I think yeah and I think for some of them too the outlet doesn't exist anymore you know like I mean go you don't have to go too far back and we had street press mm. so therefore they needed content so where do they get it from well they had photographers and I know Aaron was on staff at um, rave doing their design so then they'd send him to the entertainment center to shoot whoever was coming through town. So he was on their payroll, but that, that's all dried up now. Like, what have we got left? You know, you got the the internet and so promo shots, I guess band promo shots. Yeah, still and you would have had that. your history of doing that and you'd get paid to do that. Yeah, yeah, there's still money in that, but there's also times where, you know, I've walked outside my house and I've got one of those big sort of, you know, multi billboard things um, just right around the corner. And I was waiting for a coffee and I saw a photo of a band that had given my photo to an alcohol company that didn't pay. Right. And I said, okay, who do I send the invoice to? Like I charge 800 bucks for that, it's very low, especially for an alcohol company. Yeah. And the PR company was like, oh, we didn't know about that. Talk to the alcohol company. The alcohol company's like, well, it's a PR person's fault. Then the PR person's saying it's the band's fault. Then the band's saying it's a PR person's fault. It's like, oh, I don't really care. Just give me my money. <laughs> like, yeah. I've, I've done the work, you know? Yeah. Like, and, and you didn't pay me for those photos anyway. And those kind of things you start to make you a little bit jaded. And I think you spend, you know, five hours chasing money for work you already did, or you just go, I just couldn't be bothered with this anymore. Yeah. You, it's easy to feel disrespected, I think, if your heart's not fully in it and married to the creative process. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I take it you shoot exclusively digital when you're shooting pretty gigs. much. Pretty like much. I do, I do film, but I like to take film of like, you know, just crap I see. Yeah. that I think suits film, but I never share it because I just don't feel it's good enough. And yeah. in the effort of being fully honest, I think I've just got to drop my ego around. I've got to share things that are good all the time. Just share what yeah, yeah. you like, but yeah. it's so hard to do, man. And that's, <laughs> is, that's the Instagram like kind of psychology, isn't it? Like, yeah. why am I posting this? Well, I'm posting it to get the little ticks and the stuff is yeah. not good. And I'm it not doesn't matter. Those. And I tell people it doesn't matter, but why does it matter to me? Yeah, <laughs> yep, so true. 
Um, and the reason I ask that, because obviously, you know, like I shoot exclusively film because I'm old school and I learned to shoot on film. That's what I'm comfortable with. You're great at it. Thank you. Um, but, you know, when you go and shoot a live gig, like you said, you can't get the band back up there. Um, and luckily no one's paying me to shoot their live gigs, which is good. But I did a project with Concrete Surfers where I followed them for a year um, and shoot exclusively on film. Shooting on film and live shows is tough. Mm. So can you tell, like, because, you know, we're kind of talking to some young people here, you know, anyone who's looking to get into gig photography, are you shooting on full auto or are there some manual settings that you lock in on your camera and they, you, don't, you don't change those? How do you operate when there's so much variance in lighting and, you know, where the band's going to be? How do you kind of shoot that live gig? Auto is just not viable for, for live music. Um, you know, it's a good thing to see how pointing at something when you're in the garden sort of affects the aperture and the shutter speed and the ISO, but it makes its best guess and it's an idiot. It's a computer, you know, like this is where people want to worry about computers taking over the world, shoot on auto and you realize it's not even close. Uh, but you know, if you, I, I generally either shoot on shutter speed priority or aperture priority. I prefer shutter speed priority just because you've got a lot of movement. You want to make sure it's not going to be blurry. And so really it's about making sure that things are crisp. So I shoot on shutter speed priority and then I never go beneath 200 unless it's kind of like an acoustic or something really sort of, you know, uh, slower moving. And then I adjust the, the ISO as appropriate. And it's generally always going to be on the widest aperture. That's just how it is. So you kind of need a lens that at least opens as wide as 2.8 to sort of make it work. So that's the base sort of rule that I sort of stay at. Where you can get really moody sort of shots is making sure that you're on spot metering rather than any other metering setting. Because when you've got these beams of light and you've got a little bit of smoke or a little bit of you know, steam in the room, um, you, know, you wanna aim at that beam of light to sample the light because that's where a consistent source is. And then you move back to the subject and then take your focus point from that. And that gives you a nice balance of tone where you've got these really dark areas, you've got something that's properly exposed, but you've also got the person really sharp. So that's like the next level above that is the next rule that I do. And then the little cherry on the top, if I go in with that again, is focusing on their knee rather than their face. Because they're moving around, they're moving back and forward, back and forward. But their knee, generally I put their, their foot up on something, that never moves. So that's your constant point where it's just easiest to go from that. Then if they move further forward, then you still got them in because you've got a little bit movement further forward. And then you've got a little bit back, but generally at least you've got that middle section and the forward. Whereas if you go with them right in the, the middle, you've got to rely on them moving back. And if the Beyonce photos taught us anything is moving backwards always gets an ugly photo. So you kind of don't want them anyway. So go on the knee and then you've got the, you know, at least the furthest point forward plus one step back. And then any further, it'll be out of focus, but it'll be a bad photo anyway. Okay. So, so then you wouldn't want anything much wider than 2.8 because your depth of field would be too narrow? Ideally not. But, you know, sometimes, you know, I've got a, a lens that's 1.4. And I used to have one that was 1.2 and 1.2 was not practical. Yeah. I sold it to get the 1.4. But, you know, 1.8 is kind of the sweet spot, right? Like 1.8 to 2.8, I yeah. think is the, but you're right. You know, it's, it depends on the different venue that you're doing as well. And it depends on the kind of thing you're doing. But I think if I spent more time with the 1.2, I could have made it work. And I think some people can take a four, you know, an aperture with a, an F spot of four 
take that out there, they'll still get great photos because you learn to just be better with your gear and you learn what the limitations are. Um, you know, my fisheye overexposes all the time and it was 600 bucks, but I know how to offset it. So you just shoot it kind of differently. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. 2.8 is kind of the optimum and then you can go to 1.8 and then if you, you know, if you want, you could kind of go to 1.4. Yeah, because you could end up with a lot of really nicely focused knees. Yeah. And out of focus faces, which is probably not going to please anyone. Especially if you go with, um, you know, your shutter speed priority and you're making, you're letting that automatically pick the aperture. It's just going to go, oh, you need it wide, right? Like here's the max. Yeah. And that's kind of where the spot metering can help because if you spot meter based off the beam, it'll go, oh, you need four. Yeah. Because it's not considering anything but that one point. So um, the other thing I forgot to mention is when you're doing spot metering, turn off all your focus points except for one, because that way you know that you're auto-focusing on one point, but you're also spot metering on one point as yeah. well. So you can just go, okay, that's the point that it's at, rather than it going, you want 64 places we can focus? We can do that, but it can also 64 point uh, sample of light, you know, and you don't yeah. want that. So you've got heaps of under and heaps of over. Absolutely. Everything in the middle looks great, but the rest of it looks shit. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, that's really, really good advice. You know, and, and I think, you know, we've all probably suffered from, you know, gear acquisition syndrome. Um, oh, gas. But, yes, the old gas. <laughs> yeah, I'm just paring back my, my analog camera collection. Good um, luck. I wish you luck. It's hard yeah, to you you give up go, oh, I really like that one. <laughs> oh, my daughter bought me that one for Christmas, but I don't use it anymore. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Um, so would you recommend, like, if someone's young and starting out, stick with one camera, stick with one lens and learn how that operates and then expand from there? I reckon one, one camera body and two lenses okay. is like the sweet spot. But make sure your lenses have sort of unique characteristics, you know, like I used to have a Prime 50 1.8, it cost me like 150 bucks at the time, and then whatever kit lens came with it, which was, you know, like a 18 to 105, I think, uh, f4. So the difference between those is this kind of like an all-rounded daytime lens with the, the f4. Um, it's got a bit of zoom in it. The other one being a fixed 50mm 1.8, I had to learn how to move around a subject to compensate from that. And I think the, the trick to that is if you've got two lenses, you've got some variants, but leave one lens at home and teach yourself to work with what you've taken and understand why you might have needed that lens and, and how to make the most of it. Because there's going to be a bunch of times where you don't have time to change your lens, especially with music photography. You got to go with it. So how do I make it work? Yeah. Because some gigs... You get three songs, right? Like if it's a big act and you're in at the entertainment center or you know, uh, maybe even the Fortitude these days, you get the first three songs then you're out of the pit. Yeah, that's it. You know, so you can't be fumbling with lenses. Nah, and you know, some people bring two camera bodies, but it's like, you know, how are you affording that? You know, like everyone can save up, right? But is it viable to yourself as a business yeah. to take those when you're not really getting paid? The answer is no. But it's, not, it's a nice to have, but don't get sort of, you know, swindled by that. Yeah. Because anyone, someone in their family could have died and they got a big inheritance. It's not indicative of their success at all. You know, so many people are in the hole and have these big loans. I met a guy the other day and he got a $7,000 loan, spent it all on cameras and he doesn't have a single client. And, you know, other people don't ask that question and they think that this person is, is making bank. And you get your hopes up and then you realize that all is not what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, there's an account I follow on Twitter. It's called Shitty, Shitty Russian Camera Challenge. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the ethos is basically you can take a great photo with a shit camera 
and you can take shit photos with a great camera. Absolutely, some great, some great cameras have no soul to them, you know, and, and this is so perfect with digital and film. Film have all these imperfections and all these things that just aren't quite right, but they make a better photo because it feels like it's lived in, it feels matured, it feels finished. Whereas digital, it's like you put something online and one thing I noticed really early on is you put a digital thing online, people know you can change it because it's digital, so they give you feedback. And it's like, I wasn't asking you for your feedback because I felt this was complete and that's all that matters. And then you're like, oh, it's never finished, it's never finished, but it is, it's as finished as you want it to be. Whereas film, it's complete, it's yeah. sealed. And I love that about film. But yeah, it, it's interesting, right? Because sometimes I feel like digital stuff has no soul and people put fake film stuff on it. And I do it to a degree as well because you don't want people to tell you that it's too clean. Yeah. Well, now you've got, you know, like a lot of cameras, like the Fuji series, they've got, you know, their their film. Um, what are they called? 100F, like the stock and 100F, yeah. 400X. Yeah, you've got, you know, Provia 100 and, you know, you've got all the film stocks that you can choose. So it's like the digital camera trying to shoot film, which is an interesting thing, you know. And the other thing I've seen, particularly in the digital realm, is that trends in editing come and go. Like there used to be this hyper clarity trend. Ah. You know, where everyone had hyper pump the clarity up on their Lightroom, and you're like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> but it was a trend, right? Yeah. And now we're going through the pro mist filter trend, you know, where everything's this misty kind of look. And you're like, just, just smear some Vaso on your lens, like we did in the old days, if you want that look, you know, <laughs> and leave a hole in the middle. That's what film photographers did for decades. You know, yeah. you want that dreamy kind of um, the wedding photo with the hands crossed with the rings on. Just smear a bit of Vasa in the outside of the lens, take that shot, and you've got a ProMist filter. Yeah, exactly. But we get these trends in editing now. It's, it's interesting mm -hmm. to see how that goes, whereas film, there's less temptation to do that, I guess, because you're right. Film is, you know, it is, like you said, it's sealed, but, you know, there's some people that argue you should never edit your film photos. And on my first job out of school, I worked in a photo lab, and I did all the enlargements. This guy was a wedding photographer and a portrait photographer. And my, my life was in, like I was like a mushroom, literally I was in a room about this big, you know, like three by three square meters with an enlarger and a processor. Mm. I saw the light of day, smoke on lunch and when I went home, that was it. I'll tell you now, I edited everything because I had to. Like you've got your cyan, you've got your, your um, magenta and you've got your yellow and you, I'm editing everything through the, through the negative onto the paper and then I print it and go, mm, that looks shit, let's tweak it again. So everything's edited to, to a degree. Yeah, oh, absolutely, and it's, it's about personal preference on what you think. But if you try to artificially, like, every, every single photographer is your own, your sole business. And so lean into that. Enjoy finding your own editing style. Don't go, oh, well, this is what's in, in vogue at the moment because it'll be out of style eventually. So what do you like to do? Yeah, which goes back to your initial comment about brand. You know, if you're following, if you're looking at Instagram all the time and going, that's the photographer I need to be, I take weird shit of empty buildings and isolated scenes at night around Brisbane. That's what I do at the moment, you know, and it's like, okay, I did a series of classic cars because I like classic cars and I like film and they look good on film, but then everyone's doing it. I'm like, well, I'll back off from that. It's weird, right? Like when everyone's doing something, because I'm the same as you, I'm like, I won't do it anymore. Yeah. And it's, I haven't really reckoned with why I'm like that. Do you know why you're doing that? Oh, I think, I think, um, Oh, look, I do it with everything. If someone hypes up, you know, a, sh a TV show, like someone goes, oh, you've got to watch Stranger Things. I'll I'm watch not it. watching Stranger I'll Things. I'll watch it three years later because <laughs> yeah. it's like you're hyping it. It's, I don't know what it is about me. 
<laughs> you'd have to dig deep into my history as a child. I don't think anything traumatic happened to me when I was so young. But yeah, I, I do that with everything. I think it, it's because it becomes a cliche and then you're like, well, and maybe it's because I look at them and go, you're doing it better than me. And that's my opinion. I think you're doing it better than me. So I'll get out of that lane and I'll shift into a lane that I'm comfortable in. And the night photography came about because of COVID the first time around. Mm. We're locked down during the day. I would sneak out at night and take photos. And I went, I like this. I like the solitude. I like the fact that there's not lots of people around, there's not cars to dodge with scenes or whatever, and it just kept progressing from there. But yeah, maybe it's because people do it better than me. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird too, right? Because before we came up here, um, I ran into a couple of these students and they were, they were scanning some, some gig photos on film. And they were like, instantly, I said, oh, can I have a look? Instantly she goes, they're not very good. And I looked at them and I'm like, they're just as good as the ones I take. <laughs> You know, but it's so weird because I'm like, they're just as good as the ones I take. And so, you know, she would think that, you know, her stuff's not as good. I think my stuff's not as good. It's this weird twisted perception. And, you know, the people that probably go, I'm doing this because I saw Brett's version of that and he inspired me to do it. I wish I could be as good as Brett one day. But you're like, nah, they're doing it better, so I'll stop doing it. And they're like, why doesn't Brett do it anymore? <laughs> Yeah, it's the creative mind, I think. We're never satisfied with the final product. Yeah, it's a, it's a cycle that just keeps going. And it's a good thing, I think, because it keeps driving you to be better because you're like, oh, it messes with your head a bit, but I think it is the drive to do better. Let's segue a bit because we're, we're getting towards the end of the, the podcast. Your podcast. Well, this is a good segue, actually, because that's exactly why I created yeah, well, you know, you my podcast. You started out doing a photography podcast, Filter, yep. Um and I subscribed to that. Thank you. And then all of a sudden it changed its name. It, I'm like, oh, Filter's not there anymore. It's called Creative Detour. Tell us about the reason for the change. Like I started towards the end of Filter and, you know, Filter started out by me sharing things like I did before about spot metering, things like that. And I started to feel like I was running out of things to share. Um, and you never can, but I was just, the brainstorm tree was getting low. And so I started interviewing photographers and then I interviewed all the photographers that I like. And then I'm like, I kind of want to interview a non-photographer. And then I just realized how hungry I was for a wider net. Um, and also not everyone's interested in photography. If I want to really help people, I can either just help photographers and that's, you know, that can only get me so far, or I can help heaps of people. And there's so many people that, um, you know, struggle with the same concept of that cycle that we just spoke about, about, you know, how do we, how do we get over that self-doubt? How do we get over accepting that what we imagined we would be is not who we ended up to be? And is my final form, you know, of value to, you know, the creative field? And the answer is yes, but we always struggle with that. You know, like I can look at the stats all day and it means nothing. And then I get one email and that could have just been if I only ever had one listen and it generated one email saying it meant something to them or it created a different way for them to think, then that's, that's all that I need to, to aim for, you know? But I think we always struggle with that, right? You know, some of the standout apps for me are when Mikey Richards from Soho came on and he talked about accepting just your creative spirit. That's not about Soho. That's not about his, you know, change in what he wants to do from a, a tarot perspective and all that. It's not about that. It's about you can apply that thinking to anything is that you are who you are and just like believe in yourself. 
And then we've got people like April Josie, who is a great photographer from, from Sydney. And, you know, she deals with a lot of mental health things like, you know, bipolar disorder, all those things. How do you, and that conversation was how do you stay consistent to clients when one day you're so manic and you're like, yeah, I can do everything. Next week you can't do anything. So how do you stay consistent to them and actually, you know, operate as a business like that? Again, you can apply that to everything. It's not just photography. Then I had Lana B, who is a, an OnlyFans creator. And that was interesting because, you know, she's got to carve off a piece of her identity creatively outside of who she actually is and also form this, this really lengthy content schedule that she goes through to say, here's how I maintain everything as a different identity to who I am, and here's how those two, here's how my real identity and my fake online identity kind of intersect, and here's how I accept that I'm selling a piece of myself for that. And so I think it's, you know, those kind of stories can be applied to everything. It's not about the creative discipline, but we've all had these weird stories, right? Like we told mine today about how I didn't think I could do photography, you know, and I thought I'd end up doing something else. And you just find yourselves in these weird situations where you go, am I enough as I am? or am I making a meaningful contribution to someone? And so I just want to keep interviewing people that have interesting stories. As long as they're contributing to arts in some kind of way, like that's, that's who I want to talk to. Fantastic. I like your, um, you know, right from the very beginning of this, this conversation we're having, that whole ethos of giving back and, and wanting to help. And I think that's, you know, that's very noble, it's wonderful. And, you know, I applaud you for it. I think, you know, I'm listening, I listened to your latest podcast, which was the, his name escapes me, the Lego Masters guy. Yeah, Alex Taylor from, Alex, uh, that's it. Alex Taylor, sorry, from yep. uh, Lego Masters. Yeah. Uh, he's a great dude. And um, I don't know, what did you think? Of, what, did, what did you find interesting? I really that? enjoyed, again, you know, like, it, it, well, the whole Lego Masters thing has been interesting. Like, I watch it. Religiously, I haven't played with Lego since I was, well, since my kids were kids. You know, before that, it was when I was kids. And actually, in fact, we were too poor to afford Lego when I was growing up. Yeah, we, seriously couldn't, cheap, yeah. we seriously couldn't buy it. The neighbours had it, you know, yeah. to go to the neighbours' house to play Lego. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, but um, yeah, I found it really interesting that, that that whole adult thought process around Lego and how he fell into that and, you know, how he could express himself creatively through these, you know, they're not very creative. They're, this, they're rectangular, rigid, sharp blocks, but you can actually create this beautiful art, you know, out of these, you know, really little blocks, which is interesting in itself. But yeah, no, I really enjoyed listening to it. I admit I fell asleep through it because I listen to podcasts while I'm yeah. falling asleep. That's Plus I've got a soothing voice. Well, yeah, you do. <laughs> That's true. You should be on radio. <laughs> Um, it lets my mind unwind from my daily job, yeah. whereas I used to suffer badly from insomnia, uh, thinking about work and all the things I had to do and messes I had to clean up or whatever, and now I can put a podcast on. So I must admit, I fell asleep halfway through it, but I did enjoy what I heard and I really liked that, that aspect of it. Yeah. The common thread with everyone that I've talked to, including Alex, is that they don't feel like they have a story to tell. Yeah, he said that. Yeah, yeah. And they absolutely do. That's why I can pull more than an hour out of some of these episodes. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because you have an idea of where you want to take the conversation and it never goes there because they give you things that are far more interesting than that. You know, like even the Georgia Mac episode goes for like two hours, but I feel like it needed two hours to have people understand that she's not faking it. She can't fake it for two hours. She's a good person. Yeah. Um, and I wanted people to see her, the person that she is, not the tabloid version or the version that gets sort of reported where they go, she, she yelled, so she's mad. It's like, it's not like that. Um, and so 
you know, a lot of these stories just unfold in ways that you wouldn't kind of expect. And the list of people that I want to talk to is, is long, obviously. They keep adding to it. Like, I want to get you on there um, and talk about the work that you do here. Um, you know, it's, there's just so many people with interesting stories. And I wish people would believe in the value that they bring a little bit more. And if not, hopefully hearing other people doing cool stuff and going, that sounds like what I'm doing, will give them a little bit of courage to, you know, accept their their contribution to creative art. Awesome. That seems like a really good point to end on. Thanks for coming in today, Matt, and sharing your story with us. Thanks for having me. And um, I look forward to listening to more creative detours, and I look forward to seeing more of your photography. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. Thanks oh. so much for having me on. You're such a good guy that does awesome work here. And, um, super proud to know you. Okay. Thanks for that. I'll, um, I'll get the editors to cut that bit out. <laughs> you better not. <laughs> thanks, Matt. No worries. Thanks, buddy. Cheers.